Once I read a story of Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was the premier preacher of the 19th century. Uh, Pastor, really, what we would call a mega church in London, England. His sermons were printed in hundreds of newspapers throughout the world. And, but it was the story of Charles Spurgeon in his pastoral ministry visiting an elderly woman in her home who was sick. And he went there to give her a pastoral visit. And she was in a very dilapidated home and uh, on a coast and very drafty and she was quite ill and obviously not a lot of resources or funds. And, and he was visiting her to pray with her and to minister to her. And as he was talking to her, he noticed on the wall near her bed a plaque. And as he kind of looked a little closer, this was a plaque certificate uh, that was given by the Queen of England. And the Queen of England, as he read this, uh, he said, you have a plaque here from the Queen of England. She said, yes. said, I was the first uh, among the, the rank of maids, I guess. She says, I was the first maid for many years to the Queen. And when I left there, she gave me that wonderful plaque. And as Spurgeon read it, he said, do you, do you know what this plaque says? And she says, oh, no. She said, I've never learned to read. And Spurgeon took it off the wall and began to read it to her. And the plaque was from the queen that gave this woman uh, the full benefits and retirement money of her work there as in service to the queen for the rest of her life. And he said, do you understand what this says? She said, I never knew that because I didn't know how to read it, never read it. Here she was in this impoverished situation when she had the resources to take care of her and to provide above and beyond all her needs. And I heard that story and I thought, you know, that's often a description of the way believers are that live in a spiritual poverty, if you will, uh, and not knowing what the Word of God tells us and says about who and what we have in Christ because we don't read it. We live in a spiritual poverty because we've not read or understood or certainly applied the blessings and privileges that are ours in Christ Jesus. Paul said in Ephesians 1.3, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Who has blessed us. Past tense. Speaking to believers who has blessed us with everything that we need. And this morning, the title of the message that we're going to look at this morning before we partake of communion together, the title of the message is The Reality of Our Righteousness. The Reality of Our Righteousness. I kind of went back and forth in putting that word our there because we're just not used to speaking about our righteousness. But as we'll see, it isn't ours in the sense that it's generated from our own self. It's ours by virtue of what Christ has done. Uh, so this morning we're going to talk about the righteousness 
that is our righteousness in Christ. The righteousness of Christ is one of those spiritual blessings that we, speaking to Christians, believers, born-again believers, that we presently now possess. That when you became born again, that you possess that. You possess the righteousness of Christ. And that's part of, I believe, when Jesus said in John 10.10 that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you may have life and have this life more abundantly. Part of the abundant life of the reality that we have is that we have been given the righteousness of Christ. So this morning, to kind of break it down a little bit, do a little teaching on it, is number one, I want to look at defining the righteousness of God. Defining the righteousness of God. Now, this may seem obvious, but I'll just underscore it, that it isn't that God... Understand that God does not have righteousness. He is righteous. Okay? That's his very character. It doesn't just that he has love. He is love. Doesn't that mean he has holiness? He is holiness. God is righteous. And Jesus said something very kind of shocking in Matthew 7 when he said that this perfect righteousness is what God requires for us to enter into his into relationship, into his presence, enter into heaven, if you will, when we pass over. Uh, Jesus said, as he was talking to the scribes and Pharisees who were masters at working diligently and hard and keeping the law and maintaining a works-based righteousness, Jesus told, uh, said something very radical in what we refer to as the section of the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But in Matthew 5, 20, Jesus said, For I tell you, speaking to his followers, his disciples, he said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds, goes beyond that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that was jarring to these followers of Jesus because in their minds, nobody was walking more of the straight and narrow than these religious guys uh, that were among them of the of these of these uh, you, they wouldn't call them denominations but of the Jew of the Jewish religion uh, you had scribes which were more of the we would call them the lawyers focused on the legalities of the the law the Pharisees you had another group called the Sadducees they were the primary movers and shakers but Jesus said you can't enter in the kingdom of God unless your righteousness exceeds that of these, of these scribes and Pharisees. And then he went on to say something even more jarring. In verse 48, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, you might as well just stop right there because nobody's perfect, right? How, do you, how, how can you do that? That's an impossibility. But as we understand in Scripture, what is impossible with man, all things are possible with God. But don't miss the standard of what Jesus was saying, that God requires righteous perfection. The scribes and Pharisees thought they they were on the right track with it. But just as an illustration, he says, it's got to go beyond that. How can it go beyond that? Well, Jesus And the word this morning will kind of work through that a little bit. But we can't be perfect. That's a truth that 
is consistent throughout the Word of God, is that we cannot attain some type of perfection. We are born, the Bible says, in an estrangement before God. We're born in sin, to use Bible terms. We're born in sin. We're separated from God. And so in our own effort, we cannot meet the standard. What's the standard? Perfect. We can't meet that standard that is set, the bar that is set by the words of Jesus himself. So therefore, if we have any hope, we need an outside righteousness. We need the righteousness of Christ that you may have heard the word imputed, maybe the word credited may be more helpful, that must be credited to us because we do not possess any righteousness in of ourselves and we cannot earn it by ourselves, okay? So we need the righteousness of God and that's why this is important because God in his love and mercy and grace made a way, and this is what the gospel is all about, he made a way to receive the needed perfection, the needed righteousness. A couple of key scriptures, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, He, God, made Him, speaking of Jesus, to be sin. But then He qualifies and says, Who knew no sin? So that, so that. Why did God do that? Why did the Father do that? Why did Jesus do that? So that in Him, Christ, we might become what? The righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. Verse in 1 Corinthians 1.30 underscores this as well. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. I'd circle that word in. You're in Christ Jesus, who became to us Wisdom from God and what? Righteousness. Righteousness. Jesus became our righteous, our righteousness. So if I were to ask you the question and say, are you righteous? We kind of have a default to kind of a false humility where, you know, we're like, well, no, I'm, I'm not righteous. I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm just an old sinner saved by grace. That's really not the language of what the Bible says your identity is right now. Yes, you were a sinner. Yes, you were saved by grace. But your identity on this ledger, on this side of the ledger of the cross, is that you are now the righteousness of Christ. And we just still kind of have a hard time saying that because why? We don't feel very righteous. How many of you feel righteous? Oh, yeah, I knew I wouldn't catch you. Oh, let's mark their names down. No, we don't feel righteous. I mean, we might feel good. Hey, I didn't kick the dog. I didn't run a stop. You know, we, you know, we kind of had a good day, but then tomorrow, you know. But, but again, this is always the tension for the believer is how we are going to define how we live by based upon how we feel. Do you ever feel like always forgiving somebody? No. You always feel like doing the right thing? No. You ever feel like being selfish? Yes. But again, where do, we, where do we take our reality, not from the cues 
of how we used to live and our old, what we'd say, our old humanity. But what is the Word of God? How does that define who I am? And the Bible says that we are present because of Jesus, who became the righteousness of God. We are righteous. We are walking an identity is righteous. Now, as soon as we start talking about that and start, start talking in that language, is that I better turn on my clock, which all this doesn't count. This is all free time. All right. Uh, is that we're going to immediately get pushback from the enemy, the devil, Satan, who is always going to challenge and push back to, to convince you that you don't have a right to ask anything from God. That God is really, you just, you just, you're just going to be lucky if you make it. Well, that's not what the word says, is it? And so he's going to try to keep you in a bondage where sin controls your life. And not only sin, but sinful thoughts and thinking. But he will not be able to do that if you awaken yourself every day and say, it doesn't matter how much sounds my bones make when I get out of this bed. It doesn't matter how I feel, but I am the righteousness of God in Christ. I am the right... And the Bible says something, I love this, in the New King James, 1 Corinthians 15, 34, it tells us to awake to righteousness. That means... Awaken to the reality of what the Bible says your identity is. That you have the righteousness of Christ. Now we often think of righteousness, we confuse it with holiness. And really holiness, walking in holiness, speaks to our conduct. But righteousness is our identity. Righteousness is who we are. Righteousness is the present identity of what God has done and bestowed upon us in Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 1.30 again. And because of him, you are present right now in Christ Jesus, who became to us righteous. The righteousness. He became to us righteousness. And so that is what God has done. That doesn't mean that you're walking around in some kind of goody-goody two-shoes, uh, arrogant, uh, you know, uh, you're better than everybody, or somehow you feel like Walking in righteousness means that I'm walking around as some kind of spiritual, super, you know, super spiritual, and I'm going to get me a big, big Thompson chain Bible, and I'm going to start wearing a big cross around my neck. I'm going to start letting everybody know how righteous I am. That's the way the Pharisees operated. I mean, they went out of their way to make sure that people knew when they prayed. They prayed, Jesus said, don't be like those religious guys that are standing on the street corners reminding everybody of how religiously righteous self-righteous they are. You know, he talked about prayer. When you pray, don't do it out in front of everybody like you're parading out uh, and showing off in front of people. Go into your prayer closet. Go in secret and pray. So righteousness isn't just the outward. It isn't outward actions, even though there's going to be manifestations, the fruit of the Spirit. But the righteousness means translated right standing. We are in right standing. When a person accepts Christ, when a person is born again, that person is moved out of one kingdom into another kingdom. That's what the Bible says in Colossians 1.13. The Bible says, For he, God, Christ, has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. That's B.C., before Christ. 
and transferred us, that's what he's done, into our present reality, which is into where? The kingdom of his dear son. When you're born again, you went from this this present reality and this domain, and God has rescued us, and he has transferred us. He has brought us a change. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he who is is in Christ is a what? New creation. Why is this a big deal? It's a big deal because, as Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 16, he says, watch, watch, pay attention to your life, and doctrine. What is doctrine? Doctrine is belief. Pay attention to your life and doctrine because the way that you live, the way that you order your life, the way that you think is determined by what you believe about God, believe about yourself, believe about the Word of God. Watch your life and doctrine and what you, how you lived is, is an ex- or exemplifies what you really believe about who you are in Christ and whether you understand this. And as I said, there will be pushback. There's always pushback. The Bible says that the devil is an accuser of the brethren. He's an accuser. In Revelation, he's called an accuser. He's a finger pointer. Right? As soon as you begin to step out in the ways of God, and you begin to walk in the Word, you begin to apply scriptural principles in your life and your family, the enemy is always going to be, who do you think you are? If they knew, they knew you like I know you. You're a phony. This religious thing, kick, you're on. You ever hear those kinds of things? Of course, we all do. In fact, the Bible says something interesting over in Acts 13, Paul is rebuking a Elimas, a sorcerer, a magician, but he's not like a magician that is pulling rabbits out of hats. It's a, it's a sorcerer. He's a work of evil, and he's referred to as a, he's an instrument of Satan. And in Acts 13.10, he says, You son of the devil, and what can be applied to one of uh, Satan's uh, instruments can be applied to the devil. He says, You son of the devil, you what? Enemy of all unrighteousness. You look around in our culture, Satan hates righteousness. The Bible says that righteousness exalts a nation. So what's the opposite of that? Unrighteousness, what? Defeats, declines a nation. We live in a nation right now in our culture that we celebrate unrighteousness. We encourage unrighteousness. We provide tax dollars to promote and fund your unrighteousness. Satan is an enemy. So don't expect that the same one Jesus said was a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Don't expect not to have pushback in battle. But again, we're walking in the reality of who Jesus says we are, and that is that we are walking in His righteousness, and He has declared, because we are in Christ, that we are the righteousness of Christ. So this morning, I want to look at, secondly, the description of righteousness, and I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans 
chapter 3. All that was just introduction. How about that? I want us to primarily spend the rest of our time in Romans 3. We're going to look at the description. Secondly, the description of righteousness. Describing the righteousness of God. And there's a great passage that lays out several, several things uh, that we'll walk through. And they'll be on the screen. So if you're taking notes, we try to make that easy for you by putting uh, these things on the screen for and encourage you to be an active listener. Uh, most of you uh, don't have a photographic memory. I'd say most of you don't probably, you know, even going to remember. I barely remember what I preached last Sunday. All right? So, you know, I can't imagine. Like, I don't even know what you preached 10 minutes ago. All right? So, so that's why writing something down, being an engaged listener, just maximizes the Word of God being applied into your life. And the Holy Spirit speaks through the Word. The Holy Spirit works through the Word. So be an engaged listener. And, um, and some of these truths, I think, again, this is one of those key pivotal texts and passages from the Word of God. And so the Word of God is the best way. The Word of God gives us the best description of what this righteousness is, but not only what it is, but what it is not. All right? So we're going to look at these uh, several of these descriptions in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 28. I'm not going to read the passage up front. We'll just kind of read as we walk along for time's sake. Number one, notice that this righteousness is distinctive. This righteousness is distinctive. Did I not put up that? Does that word not show? All right, hit, hit the next. Hit No, uh, go to where it says number two. Oh, you, oh, you, oh, okay, all right, sorry. All right, good, good. I'm looking at that one, and I forget that projector is blocking the screen. Okay, never mind. Romans 3.21, this righteousness is distinctive. Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, and here's, the, here's where it's distinctive, apart from the law. Okay, it's apart from the law. And so we'll kind of expand this a little bit as we walk through, but, but you, you've heard this enough teaching on this, most of you, but if this is a little new, uh, let me just kind of summarize, is that the basis for the righteousness that the believer now has, the basis for this righteousness is not in the law, the Old Testament law regulations, but the basis of this, that's why we call it the righteousness of Christ. It is the righteousness provided in Christ. It's not earned by the works of law keeping, the Old Testament the commandments, you realize there are 613 laws in the Old Testament? I counted every one of them yesterday. No, 613. 613 laws in the Old Testament. And the Bible says in James chapter 2, verse 10, in James 2.10 it says that if you think you keep the whole law and you break one of them, you violated the whole shooting match. That's the message version, shoot and match. You violated all of them, so it's impossible, but it's, this righteousness is distinctive from anything that could be identified or earned by the law. The righteousness that God has provided in Christ, foundationally it is based on what we call, or the Bible refers to as the new covenant of Jesus, the basis of the cross. We sing about the blood of Jesus. It's not saying that the law is bad. Paul said in Romans 7 that the law is good, it's holy, 
But it's inadequate. The law was limited. It could diagnose our problem, but it couldn't offer the remedy. All right? Paul said, also in Romans 7, he said, I wouldn't have known what coveting was if it had not been for the law. In other words, the law only revealed the perfection standard of God, but the law was never designed to make us or enable us to attain righteousness. In fact, Paul said in Galatians 3.21 that if a law could have been given to make us righteous, God would have provided that. So the law, while it was a standard of God, but it also stood against us. In Colossians 1, it says that through the cross, a great passage in Colossians 1, that because of the cross, Jesus, when he was nailed to the cross, that he nailed the handwriting of requirements that were against us to the cross. That was the law that spoke about the requirement of your sin and my sin and our death. Jesus nailed those to the cross. And the law's purpose in Galatians 3.24 was to provide almost as, and it says in the ESV, as a guardian to lead us to Christ. That word in the Greek guardian is the word we get pedagogue from, a teacher. Or uh, in, in this culture and time, people would hire um, we might call it a nanny or a teacher or a tutor or somebody to uh, tutor and lead that child in their education or literally to walk them to school. And that's the word in Galatians 3.24 that Paul uses that the law was like our tutor that take us by the hand and lead us to Christ, but it only could take us so far. It only could take us so far. So Paul, again, as he said, he said, sin was revealed to me by the law, but the law was only the description and it wasn't the prescription. You with me? And so verse 21, the righteousness that Jesus provides is distinct. Don't confuse it. John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by what? Becoming a curse for us. One of the biggest problems in the church historically, even in the book of Acts, right out of the gate was this confusion between law and grace. How is a person made right or accepted in the presence of God? But it's distinctive, this righteousness of Christ. Secondly, This righteousness is not only distinctive, but secondly, this righteousness, according also to verse 21, is communicated. Is communicated. It says this righteousness has been manifested. It has been made available. It has appeared. Uh, It's been something initiated and provided by God. This righteousness given by God. Verse 21 in the New Living Translation says it this way, But now God has shown us a way to be made right with Him. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with Him. There's no secret knowledge that you have to tap into. You know, I'm always leery of books that have the word, The Secret Truths of Jesus. You know, I'm always leery of all but. But this righteousness is something that has been made known. 
It's been made plain to us. I was reading, uh, of course, in our area, you know, we, we know a little too much about Scientology, that in order to be a, a, a Scientologist that reaches the ultimate level in Scientology is going to cost you over $100,000 because every level you have to buy the course in order to meet that level is going to cost you several thousands of dollars. And there's like 10 or 12 levels, and sometimes they change the course, and you got to go back and buy it again because you want to get in on the secret of being made clear according to being a, a good Scientologist. Well, guess what? There's no secret. God has manifested, made this plain, the truth of how we can be right with a holy God. Thirdly, this righteousness has not been only communicated but it is affirmed. It is affirmed. Verse 21 again. This righteousness of God has been manifested, made known from the law. It's distinctive, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What is he saying? He's saying this wasn't just something, you know, sometimes people have this idea, and I've even some seen some very uh, poor um, liberal theologians that try to uh, thwart or try to create a wedge between the Old Testament God, which was a God of anger and wrath, and the New Testament God, which is a God of love. No. It's one God, one book, one message, one theme, one hero, all right? But what is he saying is that the righteousness that has been provided to us in Christ is that which is consistent with the totality at that time when it was written with what we call the Old Testament. When he says, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The law, the books of Moses, the prophets. There's another way that this is uh, sometimes distinguished. Remember Jesus, when he was after the resurrection on the road to Emmaus, came alongside some disciples that were walking on the road, and as he, in the conversation Luke 24, verse 44, he said to them, uh, as he spoke to them about the necessity of the resurrection, he said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you. Notice this, that everything written about me, where? In the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So that tells me that this, what we refer to as the Old Testament, points to Jesus. Now, we needed the New Covenant, we needed the revelation of the New Testament to explain and understand the Old. You may have heard the phrase that the New, the New is concealed in the Old, and the Old is revealed in the New. That's why we need a whole Bible. I'm not a red-letter Christian. That sounds cute, and that sounds, you know, religious, and hey, I'm a red-letter Christian. No, Jesus said, every jot and tittle, That's the, those are the, the accent breath marks of the Hebrew language, shall not disappear. I'm a whole Bible person. Don't be a red letter. That's nonsense. I know it's, they got songs and stickers and keychains and all that nonsense, but no. Listen, it's not just the words. You realize the red letter Bible, the red wasn't put in until somewhere in the mid-1800s as a marketing printing device to sell Bibles. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. This Bible, I assume, is red letter. Most of them are. My point is, 
You pay attention from Genesis to Revelation. You don't just pick the red letters and say, well, that's, no. As though, well, Paul's less than the Psalms, no. It's the Word of God that affirms these truths. And so he says, look, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Not only affirm, but fourthly, this righteousness is believed. Is believed. This is a key to, this, to understanding this. It says, the righteousness of God, verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Believe. Trust, faith, the means by which we receive this gift of righteousness. It isn't just something that is automatic. It's something that we entrust. Faith is the, or belief, or trust is the instrument by which we receive that gift. And again, if you uh, know your Bibles, you know that even the ability to exercise faith is a gift of God. Because we don't have that in residence as, as sinners We even need the ability to have faith in faith. And it isn't just faith in nothing. Not just faith, you know, say, well, he's running for senator and he's a man of faith. What does that mean? Look at his voting record and figure out if he's a man of faith or a woman of faith. Doesn't look like it. You see, faith and the strength of biblical faith is in the object of what our faith is in. Don't have your faith in a person, you know, a a pastor or another. No, our object of our faith is Christ, right? That's That's the one we have faith in, the author and finisher of our faith. Look at Hebrews 11.1. We're familiar with Hebrews 11.1 by Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. But look at it in the Amplified Bible. If you're not familiar with the Amplified, it's a a translation, but what they do is they try to bring out some of the nuances. That's the reason you'll see words and phrases in parentheses. They they help us uh, who who don't uh, know know our Greek as well as literally our English. We don't know well. But anyway, uh, that it tries to bring out the the nuances of some of the Greek language, and that's why it's sometimes a little longer expanded. So look at Hebrews 11.1 1 in the Amplified. Now faith is the assurance, and you see a comma there. It's just trying to bring out the meaning of the word in the Greek, the assurance. That means the confirmation, the title deed of the things we hope for, faith being the proof of things that we do not see, and the conviction of their reality. We don't have any conviction that any of this is real. That's why we struggle. Well, I hope so. I hope it's true. I hope to make it. I hope Peter lets me in the gate. Listen, you don't want Peter. You need Jesus. Don't worry about Peter at the gate, which I don't know where that came from. But, but conviction of the reality, that is, to explain it, Faith perceiving as real fact what is not revealed to the senses. What are our senses? Touch, taste, smell, sight. What else? Hear, right? That's how we base life. But what does it say there? Faith is perceiving as real fact. Belief. 
It's not just intellectual assent, as we may say. You know, it isn't just, you know, well, like I, I believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States. I believe in a historical truth. It isn't, it isn't just embracing historical truth. It's, it's, it's that, that I believe with my heart, my mind, my soul. It's a volitional action that I embrace this truth and my life is changed by this truth to those who believe. But notice, fifthly, this righteousness is unconditional. This righteousness is for all who believe. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus or in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. The New Living Translation reads this way. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, and this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. You ever talk to somebody and you're trying to encourage them to come to faith in Christ, consider Jesus? I say, well, you know, I'm one day I, when I get my act together, You'll never get your act act together. So, well, I, I don't know. I've done, some, I've done some horrible things in my life. It says right here, there's no distinction, no matter who we are. And if that was true before we came to Christ, how much more is our acceptance made assured, right, now that we are in Christ? It's not he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. That's the way some of you operate. No matter who we are, it's unconditional. You see, everyone's got the same problem, and the, that's why we need the same solution of the sufficiency of Christ. Jesus said in John 1.12, or John said in John 1.12 about Jesus, but to all who did receive him who believed in his name, trusted, exercised faith, he gave the right to become children of God. You've got to believe. You can't rest on grandma's faith. Several people have attributed it to different people, but God has no grandchildren. We used to do neighborhood evangelism at one church that I was at, and and go out and knock on doors, and some of that's a little more difficult to do nowadays. And I used to think, my goodness, in this particular neighborhood, it seems like everybody had a grandpa or uncle that was a Methodist minister. Well, I'm not talking about the Methodists. could have been Baptist, or maybe it was. But it's just, again, the first thing they said was, well, my granddaddy was a Baptist preacher. Okay, that's great. Then you should have a great heritage of faith, right? But it was almost as though somehow I'm coming in under his, you know, it's like there's that mentality. No, there's no grandchildren. You and I, all of us, come individually to faith in Christ. Notice number six, this righteousness must be believed, but also number six, it is necessary. We need this righteousness. Romans 3.23, for all... You know, I'll tell you a little Greek 
language here. All right, you ready? All in the Greek means all. So now you, you know some Greek. You see, we have a righteousness deficit. We don't have any in and of ourselves. That was lost by our first parents in the garden. Humanity has a righteousness deficit. Collectively, when Adam was created perfect, he was created perfect, put in a perfect environment, created in the image of God, disobeyed God, rejected God, disobeyed what God's law in that moment was, and he rejected God's way, and what was created without sin, perfect and righteous, is now infected we are all infected, Romans 5 said, through one, man, through one man's sin, one man's trespass, all have sinned. That's why it was necessary for Jesus in his, to be, uh, have a father, to be supernaturally born, not from a human father. Joseph was not his human father. He was the stepfather. His bloodline, if you will, was pure because only a pure offering could be acceptable before God. That's why only Jesus could do what he accomplished. But we have a righteousness problem. And so everyone born since the fall or the sin of Adam are born not... We're born in the image of Adam. We are born with a sin nature. That's why it is necessary... If we are going to be made right with God, if we are going to in any way hope to fulfill what Jesus said about being perfect, we, we need God's help. We need what God has done to be in right standing. And the apostles understood this when they said that their salvation, Acts 4.12, in no one else, there's no other way. There's no other way. Except God's way. We need righteousness. It's necessary. Number seven. Again, these are just walking through Romans. Three. This righteousness is gifted. Or graced gifted, if you will. Verse 24. And we are justified by His grace. Remember what he said in verse 21? It's distinct from the law. But we are justified, made right, declared righteous by His grace as a gift. It's a gift. Something that God has gifted to us. It's not earned. It's not earned. It's given through an exchange. Listen to this. It's not earned, but it's given through an exchange. God's righteousness is not earned, but there was an exchange. Here's how the exchange took place. Christ takes our sin. He became our sin. In exchange for our sin, Christ returns to us his righteousness. Pretty good bargain, right? Jesus, the only thing you and I contributed to this salvation is our sin. That's all we had to bring. And the great exchange is he who knew no sin became the sin bearer. 2 Corinthians 5.21 we read earlier. So that we might become the righteousness of God. That's who it says about us now. Gifted. The eighth observation in Romans 3. Related to that is that this righteousness is 
purchased. Purchased. It says we are justified, verse 24 and 25, we are justified by His grace as a gift. And here's purchased through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation, the ESV uses. Propitiation is a good Old Testament word. A lot of your modern versions don't use it, but it's a, it's a good and important word because it harkens back to the Old Testament sacrifice where the sins of Israelite were laid upon the sacrificial uh, animal. And that means that the sins were laid upon the animal. The word propitiation uh, means that the wrath or displeasure of God was satisfied, was turned away. Sometimes it's People say propitiation means my sins were pitched on Jesus. You see, the righteousness is not necessarily bought, but it's paid for by Christ. He's paid it all. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Cost Jesus everything. Didn't cost you anything. Cost Jesus everything. And it's already been paid at the cross. So why do we continue to want to keep trying to add to what Jesus has done? To what he's finished? You want to keep adding to it. But number nine, this righteousness not only is purchased, but is revealing. This is really key. You see, this work of grace, the cross, it's not about me. Yeah, I'm, in, I'm, I'm involved and I'm blessed. But ultimately, this section of Scripture is really the theme isn't about me, it's about God. Notice what this says about God. Then in verse 25, it reveals something about God, whom God, Jesus, was put forward, verse 25, as a propitiation. God not only required the necessary sacrifice, God himself provided what he required. He put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, by trust. And look at this. This was to show. This was to reveal what? God's righteousness. What is the cross? That's just a symbol. But what does the cross reveal? Reveals the righteousness of God, the holiness of God. How could a holy God, perfect in all his attributes, how could a holy God make an unholy people holy? You say, well, you know, hey, just kind of like, you know, Grandpa, you know, he just kind of winks his eye and he can just kind of get away with murder, right? He can just get away with anything. He just... What's well, the big deal, you know? Come on, everybody's, nobody, you know, what's the, you know, God, God will just kind of forgive everything, talks a big game. No. You see, for God to go against his word, his law that required death, would be a violation of God's very nature and his very character. So how could a holy God remain holy in all his character 
and yet at the same time make a way for unholy people to be made holy to live forever in his presence. How in the world is that going to happen? Well, Christ. Christ. Christ, the Holy One, came and bore our sin, took our sin, so that we might be in him what he has accomplished, that we can be in Christ and be made holy by virtue of Jesus. So your righteousness isn't just the fact you came to church today and dropped a few bucks in the offering. That didn't have anything to do with it. Your righteousness, good days, bad days, up days, bottom days, righteous days, sinful days, believer, is who God sees you are right now and forever. And see, the fact that God has done this, God has initiated this, God initiated it, God provided it. You didn't vote yourself in, and you can't vote yourself out. God, our security isn't based upon how well we can keep all the stuff. The security is solely rested in what God has done in and through Christ for all eternity. That's my assurance. That's the basis of my relationship with Him. Well, Pastor, you know, I just, I don't know. Oh, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I'm dealing with. Life's hard. It's hard for a lot of you. And I know many of what you're going through, and I don't, I'm not minimizing that in any way. But sometimes, sometimes, it just, that's griping, right? What do, we do? what do we do in that? I think what we do is we do what Colossians 3, 2 says, set your minds. That's, an, a, deli- that's a deliberate action of the will. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things of the earth. There's an intentionality to say, I'm going to let my mind be focused in on the reality of the righteousness of God, of who I am in Christ versus what I feel or think or whatever I'm going, going through. Here's Romans 8, very helpful in the New Living Translation. should be on the screen. Go to the Word of God. Calibrate your thinking of what God says. Look at what Romans 8, 5-6. through 6. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature... Think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. You say, well... I want to do that. How do I get more of this righteousness? How do I get more righteous? You can't. You can't, get any, you can't add to what's perfect. If you could add to righteousness, again, I'm talking about our position, our standing before, if you can add to it that somehow Jesus was insufficient in what He has done and what He has provided. You can't get any more acceptable and righteous before God than you are right now. And that doesn't have anything to do with how you feel. 
That has to do with what the, what the Word of God has declared about you is true. But we can grow like Christ. Think about it. If we have the righteousness of God in Christ, the Colossians 3.3 says that my life is hidden with Christ in God. I'm all wrapped up in Jesus. Then the righteousness of Jesus that is in my life should be manifested in what? My character, my words, my action. Right? So it isn't that I need to be more righteous. I need to be more like Christ. I need to let, more, I need to let Jesus shine through my life, my actions, my words. Showing the fruit of righteousness that is ours in Christ. And the good news is we don't do this alone. The Lord has given us the Holy Spirit. I love the promise of Ezekiel and the old covenant that was filled in the new. Ezekiel 36, verse 26 and 27, a promise given to us in the new covenant. But we see what God was up to. He said, I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you. And I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. I'll make you teachable. Verse 27, and I will put my, see, capital S, I will put my Holy Spirit in you so that, so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he called the Holy Spirit in John 14, 26, he said, but the helper, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, what will he do? He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I, Jesus, have said to you. It isn't getting more righteous. It's getting more Jesus. It's being more like Christ. Letting the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God, is what is in us and who it says we are in this standing before God, that the righteousness of God should exhibit itself, the Galatians says the fruit of the Spirit, it should exemplify itself in being like Christ. I have one more thought I'm going to mention during the communion, but as we, in just a moment, are going to transition for a moment, prepare for communion, um, let me just say a few words before we proceed in that. It's a privilege to be able to partake of the Lord's table together. We generally try to do it the first Sunday of the month, some schedule in the summer. We may have altered that. But just to remind you that Jesus left his church with two, sometimes we say sacraments, sometimes we say ordinances, or even signs. Uh, one is baptism. And the second is the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. And the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, communion, you may have come out of a background where it was referred to as the Eucharist. We don't use that terminology, but, but it is a sign. These are symbols. They're, it's a sign which testifies to our continual walk with Jesus and his continual walk with us. 
They also were symbols or signs reminding us and affirming of the righteousness that we have now have and possess because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now, so listen, that the bread or the bread and the juice, unlike some groups, the bread and the juice is not the presence of Christ, but they are signs of the promise that Jesus is present. I'm going to, read, I'm going to say that again. While the bread and the juice are not the presence of Christ, they are symbols, signs of the promise that Jesus is present, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And so as we prepare to take communion together this morning, I hope that you take this time, not as just a time to do something overly familiar, but find yourself to be refreshed by the one who has changed your life, who, because of what he has done, presented you and I as faulty, defeated, sinful men and women, presently righteous before his Father, who died for your sins and rose for our justification, to be made right with God. The elements that we'll partake of signify the the beauty of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, the brokenness on the cross that he endured to endure God's wrath for me. His blood was poured out signifying the offering was necessary for the remission of sin. It's a reminder of his love for us. Now let me just say one word about participation. At Grace Church, we believe that the table is the Lord's table. And so we do not require you to be a member of Grace Church to participate. But if you are here this morning, whether you're visiting or even an attender for some time at Grace Church, uh, but you are uh, a born-again believer, we invite you to participate this morning in the Lord's table. But if you are here this morning and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, then we would ask that you refrain from partaking of the Lord's table this morning. Instead, use this time maybe to think, ask yourself, why am I not a follower of Jesus? What is keeping me back from being a follower of Jesus? And take that time to pray and to even, as you sit, contemplate and even consider trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So at this time, I'm going to ask if uh, the worship team's going to come. And let me give you just some instructions. What we do is we will start from the back and, uh, and make your way up through these two center aisles. The same bread and the juice are on each side. So depending on your, your side that you come on, you just come this way, take the uh, two elements, and then go back along the wall, okay? Uh, go back along the wall. So if you guys need to come on and do, do uh, be, be at the front. But they're also going to let you know. Uh, Bob and John, to you are in the back. And so they'll come by and let each row know when it's your time. So come down these two center aisles and go back along the wall. Hold the elements when you go back to your seat. Hold them until we've all received and we'll participate in together, all right? But use this time not to 
check your phone, talk, use this, phone, use this time to contemplate on what is being done here. Is again, this is not the pres. These elements don't possess the presence of Jesus in these elements, but they are promises. They are signs. They're reminders, signposts that Jesus is present in my life. That it's His righteousness. It's His body. It's His blood that has been given for me. And it's on that basis that I have the relationship I have with my Creator. So they'll lead in worship. They'll start from the back, and you just come. And again, go back to your seat and hold these elements that we've all received this morning. Before we partake of the elements together and talk about the righteousness of Christ, there's a beautiful picture of this by Christ 
of his imputed righteousness. And it's in a parable, one of Jesus' parables. You know, a parable is a earthly story with a spiritual meaning. And it's the parable of the wedding banquet. And in Matthew 22, this parable that Jesus gave of the wedding banquet. And the wedding banquet that Jesus spoke of was that final in-gathering as Jesus now, the kingdom of God has been consummated. He's ruling and reigning on the earth and the finality of the redemptive work of God is, is pictured in that final wedding uh, or the banquet uh, Revelation speaks of. And so in this parable, he gives us some insight here before we partake of these elements. And it says in verse 1, and again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But those who were invited would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves and have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized the king's servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. Now look at verse 10. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all they found. Look at this. Both good or both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But the king came in to look at the guests, and he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. And then the king said to his attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, all the guests of that banquet had something in common. They were each given a garment to clothe them, to be in the presence of the king. They came in with street clothes, but they needed the garment provided by the king for the banquet. You see, that's a picture of our righteousness in Christ. We come in 
ragged, dirty, torn, were unacceptable to be in the presence of the King. But what we lacked, the King has provided. He has clothed us in His righteousness. And we are able to sit in the presence of the King. Not because we came in with our own garment. One guy tried to do that. It didn't work. But what's required is the garment of righteousness that only can be given by the King. This morning as we will participate in receiving the elements of the Lord's table, it's a reminder that in Him we have the garment, we've been given the garment of the righteousness of God in Christ. Only there, only present, only, be, only made acceptable because we're wearing the king's garment.